Hey, I'm, I'm Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at EV. Uh, we're going to dig into this bit of God's Word tonight in Ephesians 5, which I think has some challenging things for us to hear. Uh, we're going to think tonight about what it means to be filled by the Spirit uh, and, and how that impacts us in our Christian life and walk. And um, It's going to be really good, but we need God's help. And so why don't you join me? Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful that we get to hear from you. We're so thankful that you are doing a work in us. We pray that you might continue that work tonight, that you might continue to shape us and change us and grow us, that as we hear your word, it would convict us and change us into the likeness of Jesus. Amen. I want to start off by thinking a bit about what is spirituality? What is spirituality? I think we kind of see in our, in our world, the world around us, there's this kind of view of spirituality or kind of spiritual things. Uh, I think spirituality is kind of on the rise. We've come out of the kind of post-enlightenment, kind of mechanistic, everything's just physical era. And, and, and there's a bit of spirituality on the rise in our culture. Think things like a gratitude journal. Uh, you know, you write down what you're grateful for, uh, I think, to the universe. And, and scientifically proven to have this kind of really positive effect on you in your life. Or other examples are things like yoga, uh, uh, meditation, uh, mindfulness practices. These kind of trying to connect with the universe by looking inside ourselves. The idea is that um, we have this spiritual experience by going inside ourselves and therefore connect out wider. It's kind of the world's idea of spirituality. It's, it's, it's on one hand, it's kind of this world idea of spirituality. On the other hand, I think our world and lots of people in New Zealand and Auckland today uh, don't mind the idea of, of that, but what they don't want is religion. Um, for, for them, religion is all about the rules, all about this list of things that you have to do. It's, it's this kind of uh, this set of things that are just kind of put on you and you've got to do them and it's a bit arbitrary and it's kind of like you, you just have to follow the rules. I think people in our society are in general after kind of finding an experience and, and growth but not having to change too much, not having to follow all the rules. Uh, there are lots of religions out there that are mostly about the rules, about the kind of uh, things that you do to be right with God, the, the habits, the duties, and, and they're more about that and less about a relationship with God. But I want to put to you this morning that kind of a worldly spirituality or a kind of religious rule-keeping, neither of those two have the power to create and encourage us to, to real change. They don't have the power to kind of motivate us to that. See, spirituality, it's, it's many things, but it really it's just kind of looking inside yourself to become who you, who you are. Like it's kind of this experience in the world that comes from within. And so, of course, it won't actually lead you to any kind of change or growth that isn't what you actually wanted to do because it's coming from within you. It, it doesn't, you know, you might practice yoga daily or meditation or mindfulness, all these kind of things, but it won't necessarily lead to you living God's way in the world because you're looking internally, not to God. And, and, and same uh, legalism, rule following, I, I think very rarely leads to living God's way in the world because it becomes all about the behaviors, about conforming your behavior to a kind of set pattern, not about the heart, which is where true change occurs. I was reading this week that Hitler uh, was actually a vegetarian. 
Uh, you know, I don't know if it was he actually was or just his, his PR team were kind of trying to make Hitler seem a bit nicer than he was. Uh, but there's a great example, isn't it? Someone who's following the rules, he, he was like, I don't eat vegetables because it's, I'm ethi- I'm, I don't eat animals because I'm ethically against killing animals. Uh, what? Like, he's one of the most evil people in existence that the rules didn't lead to kind of heart change in his life. Uh, it, it doesn't deal with the problem of the heart. But I think tonight we're going to see um, what true spirituality is. The Bible gives us another option, not this kind of worldly look inside yourself and not this kind of follow all the rules and do the right thing. But it gives us another option of what spirituality, true spirituality actually is. I see it there in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 18, that we are to be filled by the Spirit. Filled by the Spirit. It's to live Spirit-filled lives. As we're going to think about three areas where what the Spirit does in us to transform our lives in the Christian life. And we've kind of seen these big truths throughout the book of Ephesians so far, haven't we? If you're jumping in and you're new tonight, uh, we're kind of jumping into the meaty end. So uh, we'll try and do it in a way that you can kind of keep up and follow along. If you're new to Christianity, uh, we're talking about these deep truths of uh, how Christians are to live transformed lives. And so I want to encourage you, listen in, you can, you can hear some of that. Uh, but Christianity, I want to say, is not necessarily about keeping rules, but about transformed lives. In chapter 1, we've seen what's the big point of the book of Ephesians. God is working all things to bring them un- unity under his son Jesus. Ephesians 1.10, the lordship of Christ. We, we've seen the spirit at work there, sealing us, bringing us to himself. And in, in chapter 2, we've been made alive. And it's the spirit, notice in chapter 2, who's at work giving us access to the Father and, and building us up as his temple. And in chapter 3, it's the spirit at work in us to make us a community of love, the church, So that, why? Well, that people might look at the church, angels, demons, every spiritual power, and see God's glory. See, God is doing a work in us by his spirit. In chapter 4, we saw it's the spirit who we're united in. The spirit who does the work of bringing us up into into new life and making us like Christ. In seeing our minds renewed. It's the, the spirit's work to enable us. And, and so I want to I just have a bit of a deep dive into three areas of what it looks like to live a spirit-filled life. We're going to see that the Spirit enables us to live not self-indulgently in our love, but self-sacrificially and other person-centered in our love. The Spirit enables us not to live in darkness, but in light. And the Spirit enables us not to live in foolishness, but in wisdom, understanding God's will. That's where we're going to go tonight. So pick it up with me, uh, chapter 5. Verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, make sure you get one open. We're going to be working through it together. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us, and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. See, we've seen, haven't we, through the book of Ephesians, that we've been renewed, that we've been transformed, that we're now in God's family that we're his children. And Paul reminds us here that we are to imitate God as his dearly loved children. Have you noticed that? Kids often tend to imitate their parents. They kind of look the same, dress the same, walk the same, have the same kind of accent. Uh, My kids have this little Aussie accent. They sound like the most Bergen kids uh, going around. Um, The Christian life, the spirit-filled life, Paul says, is to imitate God. 
And what is it to imitate God? What does that look like? What's at the heart of that? Well, he goes on in in verse 2, doesn't he? It's to be like Christ. To walk in love as Christ also loved us. See, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwelled, and he came to earth and lived a perfect life so that we might see what it looks like to be like God. And in our renewed humanity with the Spirit, we're now called to be like Christ, to be like God, to to walk like he does. Um, But I just want to be clear before we kind of look at Jesus' model of love, that primarily, first and foremost, Christ doesn't come to us as a model. He comes to us before he ever models anything. He comes to us as a saviour. See, for the the, the Christian, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to us while we were unworthy, while we were rebels, while we were stuck in our own sin, living for ourselves, following our own desires, and he died for us. That's the good news. See, lots of religions, they hold up kind of a a, a central religious figure. Think, you know, Muhammad in in Islam or the Buddha in in Buddhism. And they hold them as this model of like what it is to, to follow. But what it ends up saying is you've got to be like them to be in. But Christianity is different from that. It's that Christ loved us when we were sinners. It's that he, he, he acted in love to give himself, verse 2, as a sacrifice for us to God. See, before we ever look to Jesus as a model, we see what he's done in his sacrifice. See, he took our sin, our rebellion, and the punishment for that from God, which is death, on himself and died for us. And he gave us his perfect life and the reward that he was to have for that eternity with God and gave that to us. And so it's this sacrifice. You know, he uses the word fragrant. It's pleasing. It, it smells good to God. Kind of t- tying it back in with the Old Testament sacrifices like, like cook meat on the altar. He, he gives us perfect hope and, and joy and security because of his life for us. And so as his saved people, we do all of this because we are children of God. Children of God. We don't do it to be in. We do it because we are in. We've been saved and transformed. And we call to live in this kind of life of love because of we're part of the family. Our dad, our God, God, our father is a God of love. Jesus, the son, is a God of love. And so we're called into that. It's this kind of love, isn't it, that's self-giving, self-sacrificial, other person-centered. And, and it's that kind of love that I think Paul contrasts in verses 3 and 4. It's, it's, I want to call it self-indulgent love or self-centered love. See what he says? He's, he's talked about Christ and his love for us, and he says, verse 3, but sexual immorality... And impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. Do you see how he contrasts Christ's love and what Christ has done in the kind of sacrificial, with with these kind of things he says in verse 3 and 4? The list there, it kind of covers basically every sexual activity outside of marriage. So the word there for sexual immorality is Pornea, we get the word porn for it in our culture today in English. Uh, but it's really, it's, it's any kind of sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship. And, and, and it's this kind of idea of impurity, of moral corruptness, of having thrown out God and acting against him in such a way that is, is no longer good, 
is, is we're held uh, as unclean, as corrupt before God. And, and greed, this desire to want more and more and more, this kind of uh, unsatiableness, there's always more to have. So do you see what links these sins together that Paul talks about? They're all self-centered. They're all about me and my needs. See, at the core of these behaviors is the desire to put your needs, yourself, ahead of others and even ahead of God. These are hard words to hear in our kind of cultural moment where this kind of um, thing is just really normal in our culture. And it might be hard words for you to hear tonight. It might be something you're struggling with as we go through this. But I want to show us um, not just what the Bible says about sexual immorality, um, but why. It's not just an arbitrary rule that God's given us. See, I think it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul has told them to walk in love and then contrast it by saying, don't commit sex outside of marriage. Don't, do, don't have any sexual activity outside of marriage. Why? Why is it? I, th- I think because for Paul and for the, the, the understanding of what the Bible teaches about love is, that those things aren't loving. See, one of the big cultural slogans of our generation is the slogan, love is love. That love is a feeling. It's an internal thing. It's, it's this feeling. And so, uh, it, of course, you, you know it when you feel it. No one else can tell you uh, what it is. It's, it's internal. And expressing it is always positive if it's done in a way that doesn't hurt anyone else. It's mutually consenting, that, that kind of thing. It, that's good. It's, but what, it, what that has meant for us with our culture, with that definition of love is that love has kind of lost all objective meaning. It's just this subjective feeling, and it means that no one can tell me uh, what's love and what's not love. That's for me to decide for myself. But in the Bible, in the worldview that the Scriptures give us, that God gives us, the one who made us, love is inherently tied to seeking good for another. See, here's my definition of love. It's going to come up on the screen. This isn't, I just want to caveat, this isn't from a Bible verse. This is me just trying to synthesize a few different things. So it's a working definition. It's just trying to bring some wisdom to the conversation here. This isn't God's word. But here's my definition. I want to say love delights in and desires good for others and then acts to see that good increase in their lives. See, love is more than a feeling, but it's also more than just an action. It's this kind of this desire for the good in someone else or uh, this, this kind of admiring good qualities in another and wanting to see that flourish. See, you can't love without an understanding of what goodness is. And, and goodness we, we get from God. Like God teaches us what it looks like to live well, relating rightly to him in his world. See, love wants to see another relate rightly to God, to flourish, to, to enjoy life with God in his world and, and, and try and partner with someone else to see that grow. See, Paul uses Christ as his example here. Christ loves us. What does that look like? He gives himself up as a sacrifice to bring us back to God. See, what's the good there? That we were, we were made for a relationship with God and as rebels and sinners, that relationship is broken and Christ's death is the uh, way that we can come back into that good relationship with God. That's the good and Christ loves us by going to his own sacrificial end to bring that good in our lives. When we, when we kind of start to see love like this, that it's tied with goodness, you can see that this uh, sexual activity outside of marriage isn't loving. 
See, what's at the heart of it? What's at the heart of it? It's this desire for intimacy and self-gratification without any of the commitment. It's, it's this, uh, you know, God created sex within the context of marriage where intimacy and commitment were joined together. You know, two have become one flesh, Genesis 2. Uh, it, it's, but this is kind of the opposite of that. It's to put your own wants and desires out there first, not to seek the good of another. It, it leads to kind of using others to kind of gratify yourself. It's this kind of perversion of love where it's not about self-sacrificially giving for someone else's good, but it's actually for their bad, and, and it's for your own selfish desires. See, what's the problem? What, why does God think that's a bad thing? Well, think for a second about the hookup culture that exists in our kind of dating culture today. Um, what's the danger that people are wary of in the kind of hookup dating culture that exists kind of today and in, just in the world and around? What's the danger? Well, I've heard it phrased one way, not to catch feelings. That sex is just this kind of physical thing. Uh, and, and so, of course, I don't want to get emotional. I don't want emotions to get involved. It's just this kind of physical transaction. It's purely centered on self and, and gratifying your own pleasures. So you don't try and talk about commitment or exclusivity or anything. Oh, that would be clingy. And, and what it does is it, it separates out the intimacy and commitment and you just get one without the other and it actually turns into kind of objectifying someone else for your own kind of personal pleasure. See, no one's going out to a club to hook up with someone else thinking, I want to do this to love them for their good. Are they? They're like, no one's doing it. It's, it's all about the self. And, and what has it led to? It's, just, it's led to complete brokenness. Look, how many people have been hurt? Maybe you are in this room tonight and you've been hurt by someone else using you for their own pleasure. That's not how God created us to be as humans. And, and so that's, that's why he gives us these kind of um, guidelines for how to live because he wants us to flourish in our lives. He wants us to have good, not brokenness. See, for Paul, it even kind of ties in with the way we're to talk. Our jokes are to be different. The things that we find funny, that we kind of share with each other, are to be different. You could know Christians, according to Paul, you could know if someone's filled by the Spirit by just having a listen into their conversation at dinner. Like, I can't, it's, you know, I find myself becoming more and more okay with crude humor, with violence, with things that are totally kind of against what God has to say are good. Um, do, you, do you find that like, you know, what you watch? Is shaping you. It's changing you. It's changing your desires. And, and so I think one application of this is for us that we need to be more careful with the kind of content that we're consuming. Uh, because it's changing us. It's shaping us. And it's either drawing us away from God's wisdom for how we are to live or, or it's encouraging us. It's, it's doing something. And can I just say here... Um, there's a, there's a space to kind of go, well, it's, there's some acting, you know, you watch a movie, it's acting, that's okay, it's, it's about the, the drama, the comedy, what it's, what it's doing. But nudity is never acting. It's never acting. You can't pretend to be naked, either you are or you're not. And, and so I just want you guys to have some wisdom in the kind of TV shows that you watch, particularly some of the stuff that comes through on, like, not from TV, but, you know, straight to Netflix or HBO or whatever. Like, it's just full of, of sexual immorality. And it will change you and shape you and warp your view of the world. See, here's the problem. 
that lies at the the center of just kind of a self-indulgent, self-centered lifestyle? Paul says it's actually idolatry. See what he says in verse 5 there. He says, No one recognized this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. See, idolatry is simply this idea of putting someone or something else in the place of God in your life and then worshipping it, ascribing it of the, the max worth of, of living for that thing. And I think here, what, what are you idolizing? It's yourself. It's your own desires, your own thoughts, your own kind of whatever you want that comes first. And Paul says we're not to live like that anymore. He says you can't live for yourself, worshipping yourself, and have an inheritance with Jesus. You can't worship yourself and King Jesus and be part of his family. That's kind of the essence of what he's saying here. And I think we need to take this warning to heart. I know there are some of us in this room and some of us at church that are struggling with these kind of things. And Paul has given us verses like this to remind us that the spirit-filled life looks like fighting those things, putting them off, living a life of love. As we saw in, in, in Matt's story, and man, wasn't that helpful? Like, there is always grace. God loves to rescue and forgive us. And he calls us to come back to him and repent. And, and he'll restore us. And he's given us a community to do it in. But we need to take these words seriously. God calls us to be his, his saints. The idea of saints there, it's not like, you know, the special saints that, you know, the church buildings are named after. No, no. Saints are just the people of God called to be his set-apart, holy people, to live for him, to declare his wisdom and glory to the universe. See, this verse is not saying, if you've ever committed one of these sins, then you're no longer part of God's kingdom. No, no, we have security and safety with God. I've sinned in all those ways in my life. I'm sure so many of us here have But what it is, it's describing the person who lives this kind of self-centered, self-indulgent lifestyle and puts themselves first without any remorse or repentance. And Paul's saying, if that's you, if you idolize yourself and worship yourself, then you're not worshiping King Jesus. Then you haven't responded to the call of the gospel in your life. See, Paul's calling for us to have an integration of our experience, who we are, our theology, what we believe, and our ethics, how we act. See, thought, being, and action, they all belong together in a spirit-filled life. The spirit-filled person doesn't live for themselves anymore, but worships King Jesus and listens to him, all because of the change that God has won in them. See, it's, it's this change that is at work in us by the Spirit, calling us to keep living God's way, to walk in love, to to no longer live in ways that are self-centered and idolatrous, but calling us to follow Christ as as God's children. And it's this change that Paul describes in terms of a metaphor. See it in in, um, second point in in verse 6. The spirit-filled life looks like moving from darkness to light. See, we see like it's, it's verse 6, No one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. See, the, the world will tell you that those things are fine, that they don't matter, that they don't have any effect on you the way that you live. But to be spirit-filled is to say, I'm no longer part of that life. I've been called out of darkness and into the light. 
See, verse 8, Paul says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so this idea that, uh, you know, darkness, Paul uses darkness in the book of Ephesians to describe um, evil, to describe um, the, the darkened understanding, to ignorance, error. It's a life against God. And he uses light to kind of describe the, the renewing power of the gospel in us, the work of the Spirit changing us so that we are now in Christ. It's, it's truth, it's righteousness that kind of are described by this idea of light. Um, he says, you're not, to, you're not part of the darkness anymore, and so don't participate, don't partner with the darkness. The other day, I said to Reuben, I was going to drop him off at, at, at preschool, and I was like, you know, hey, Reuben, we're going to go to preschool now. And he was like, no, Dad, it's kindy here. We're not in Australia anymore. It's this, this, this kind of, yeah, he, you know, he corrected me. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, you know, you're not in the darkness anymore. You're in the light. And so live in the light. Live as who you are. And I think we see two reasons to live in the light. The first in verse 11. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. See, the darkness, Paul said, and we've kind of illustrated this through the first point, won't lead where you want it to. You think it'll lead to um, a a fruitful relationship, but it leads to this kind of brokenness. You think it'll lead to satisfaction, and and it leads to emptiness. You think it'll lead to security and safety, but it crumbles around you. It's fruitless. It doesn't, doesn't get you where you want it to go. And it goes against what the Spirit is doing you doing in you to make you more like Jesus. See, I think we need to go, go home tonight, each of us, and kind of do the hard work of kind of self-assessing ourselves, looking at our internal spiritual lives and our emotions, our behaviors, our actions, and kind of bringing them to the light. We are light, light in the Lord, light in Christ because of what he's done, and so he's calling us to bring those things into the light. See, that's the Christian life. To, to, to change, to grow, to kind of keep self-assessing it. How is the Spirit working in me this week? Um, to sit under His Word. To, to do the work we get in um, verse 10, to test what is pleasing to the Lord by His Spirit in us, by sitting under the Word in community to kind of do this self-assessment. Test what is pleasing. So that's the, that's the first thing, that the darkness is fruitless, the light is where we see the, the, the fruit of, you know, of truth, of, of righteousness and of goodness. Verse 9. Secondly, I think the light also transforms the darkness. We get that in, in verse 13. You see, everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here you go. You want a, you want a, um, a, a one-sentence summary of the Christian life? Get up, sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's the work that Christ did in your heart, bringing you from death to life. See, when light comes into contact with darkness, what happens? Well, the darkness goes, doesn't it? Like, I'm, there's no shadow on me. There's like bright floodlights coming into my eyes right now. There is no darkness, because the light is on me. And that's what Paul's saying. That's what happens in the Christian life. See, that's what happened to you. If you've become a Christian and, and you weren't living as a Christian, or if that's what's, become, that's what's happened to you if you even were born a Christian, you were in darkness and you've been brought to the true light, Jesus, the light of the world. And he's shone light into you and transformed you. This kind of, you see the metaphor? It's this idea of light and, and renewal and new life. 
And I think it's also a reality that we are now to shine as lights. Like the moon, like the, the, the sun shines onto the moon and it lights up our, our world at nighttime. Christians are, have been made light from the light, Jesus, and we're to shine as light for our world. And so keep looking for opportunities to show with your life and your words how following Jesus leads to a better hope, a better security, a better safety, a better future, a better joy. Christians that are filled by the Spirit are no longer in the darkness, but they've been brought into the light. And, and for Paul, he moves from the metaphor now into kind of the practical. And, and third point, the Spirit-filled life looks like no longer being foolish, but being wise. So you pick it up with me in verse 15. He says, pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. See the two assumptions there? Christians are wise, not fools. And Christian wisdom is practical. It's not just theory. It, doesn't, it affects how you live. See, he says, live as not as unwise, but as wise. And to pay careful attention to live that way. Why? Well, I think partly because the days are evil. Partly because we'll drift if we're not unintentional. If the world around us is in darkness and constantly living in ways that are fruitless against God, then if we're not careful to live as wise, we'll fall into that. We'll drift if we're not intentional. So much of Christian life is about being intentional to listen to God, to verse 17, to understand what his will is and then kind of live it out in your life. See, we're to make the most of the time. There's this quote that's been doing the rounds recently, you've got the same 24 hours as Beyonce. I love that. Do you love that? Like, you know, Beyonce's got the same 24 hours that you have. You know, you think about her kind of multi-million dollar global empire and like she's got a fashion business and song and you know, she's got everything. You've got the same 24 hours as Beyonce. Captures up something really good that um, we all had the same amount of time. See, the, the, the word here for making the most of the time, the idea behind it is this idea of... Um, Redeeming time, of kind of, of buying it back, of, of liberating or freeing your time. See, it's easy, isn't it, to use our time poorly, to waste it. I looked up how much the average Kiwi spends on social media. Anyone want to have a guess? How much time the average Kiwi spends on social media per day? Yell something out. Six hours? Five, someone said five hours? Two hours. That, that's actually really close. One hour, 53 minutes. Um, but then the, the other thing is that it's an average of two and a half hours of TV usage every day. So that's close to five hours. That's like, we're getting up there, right? Um, and it's not just out there. This is, this is us. This is me and you. Like, I, I, I have an app on my phone, Digital Wellbeing, which I used to track. And, and you know, it's just like, I, I finish dinner, I sit down on the couch. And then suddenly it's bedtime. I'm like, where did my night go? Like, I just kind of wasted my time. And, and, you know, I was tired and there's always reasons. And it was just kind of, for me, often it's this, this desire to kind of uh, tune out and disconnect a little bit. And I, and I ironically go online to do that. Kind of escape from my own real world and go online and just look at other people's lives a little bit. But, I mean, does this, you guys, just resonate? Like, it doesn't even lead to you feeling more rested or restored, does it? It, it's just, it's, this is a challenge for our generation, I think. We need to keep working out how to live, making the most of our time, buying it back, redeeming it, being wise with our time. See, we're doing that right now. 
with our time tonight. We've come and sit under the word of God together. We've come to encourage each other. Man, that's a good use of your time. What are some areas in your life where you're, you're tempted to kind of not make the most of the time that God's given you? See, I think it's wasting your time, but it's also going against God's will in your life. Remember we saw that the days are evil. I think what Paul means is that we live in a sinful and broken world. See, not only will you be tempted to waste your time, but you'll be tempted to fall back into old patterns of life, sinful habits, negative emotions and behaviors, back into the foolish and fruitless works of darkness. We live in a broken and cursed world. And as Christians, we need to be intentional not to do those things, to keep coming back to living God's way in God's world. That's what goodness really is. The Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote out 70 resolutions for his life at the age of 20. Just show of hands, who's, who's already older than 20 in the room tonight? Okay, like a fair, a fair bunch of us. Uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote these resolutions when he was 20. So, like, I mean, I'm 30. I'm, like, way past this. Uh, <laughs> one, of them, one of them was this. He said uh, he, he was a bit of an intense guy. Like, just let me caveat. Uh, great Puritan theologian, wonderful, wonderful thinker and Christian. He said, I resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. There's something really good there, isn't there, that sits in line with what this passage is saying. I love that desire, making his time as profitable as it could be. See, it won't always look like hustling to do more. The world says, keep using your time to hustle, to get ahead, to grind, to constantly making the most of your time will look like rest at times. It'll look like slowing down and connecting with God. It'll look like a slow meal with friends where you get to encourage each other. But it will also look like other things. I don't know what it will look like for you. It might look like making countercultural decisions with about how you use your career or your relationships. So many jobs just demand so much of us. And then you get a promotion to get more money. And then it just means you have to stay back hours and hours and hours more until you have no time left for anything else. So that's a, that's a worldly way of thinking about your time. Whereas God calls us to make the most of our time for him. To, to understand... Uh, what does he say to understand what the Lord's will is? It will require intentionality. And I think it's this idea of not wasting your time, not going back to dark and fruitless works, but actually living God's way. It's why Paul says in verse 18, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. So the Bible's got nothing against alcohol in and of itself. In Psalm 104, we see wine gladdens the human heart. I've definitely had my heart gladdened by wine before. Uh, the problem here is with getting drunk. Why? Because what does Paul say? It leads to reckless living. And we've just seen, haven't we, how we're to walk as wise, not foolish. How the world around us is, is evil and, and corrupt. And, and we're not to be pulled into that, but to live God's way, understanding his will. See, alcohol is a depressant. It slows you down. It numbs your senses. It, 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 it makes it hard for you to make wise decisions. I've been there. I've been at a party and I've had too many drinks and I have, haven't made good decisions on that time. I don't know if you've been there. Like, it, 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 it is hard to be wise with our time when we're drunk. That's just the reality of what the drug does. See, and excessive alcohol here, it leads to this kind of, Paul describes it as reckless living. I think there's something about drunkenness that leads to, almost it dehumanizes you. 
you know, particularly in guys we see it, it makes you almost brutish. Like how much violence is the caused by alcohol not living God's way? But the Spirit almost acts in the opposite manner. See, if the Holy Spirit was in a pharmacology textbook, he'd be under the stimulants section. Uh, <laughs> doesn't mean that all stimulants are good. Uh, just, that was just a bit of a joke. Uh, <laughs> What does the Holy Spirit do? He stimulates our minds, our wills, our desires, our faculty, our heart, our intellect. He's at work in us, helping us to make wise decisions. To be spirit-filled is to be wise. See, being drunk impairs you from being wise, but the Spirit leads you to wisdom. See, God's not just giving you a rule here saying, hey, don't get drunk because I don't want you to have any fun. He's saying, what I desire for you is to be wise. And getting drunk will hurt that not help it. See, some people think that being filled by the Spirit means that you have this kind of crazy, uncontrollable experiences where you lose control of your body, you start you know, overcome by emotions, you start speaking in ways that are uncontrollable. But I think, actually, when you look at how the New Testament talks about being Spirit-filled, often it's uh, the opposite effect. It's to, to bring you to be wise, to help you to make controlled decisions. See, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control, as well as peace, patience, gentleness. There's all these things that kind of enable you to act rightly and act wisely in God's world. We need to be filled by the Spirit and be wise, not foolish. See, Paul, Paul hangs now four ideas off being filled by the Spirit. Each of them flow out of being filled by the Spirit. He says, um, the, the first one we get there in verse 19, be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. See, when we come together, I, I actually don't know exactly what this verse means. I was pondering on it. Maybe you can discuss it tonight. Does it mean you just go up to someone and kind of speak a, a, a song lyric to them? I don't know. I, I, I take it at least one thing it means is that when we sing... We're not just singing to God, we're singing to each other. We're reminding each other of these spiritual truths. We're speaking them to each other when we assemble as God's people. Uh, but you know, he goes on with to, to sing. Uh, verse 19, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. See, that the, the heartbeat of the, the spirit-filled person is this kind of genuine and sincere praise of God. It's why, you know, back in verse 4, he says, don't, be, don't use crude language and humor. But instead, give thanks. Because to be spirit-filled is to be thankful. To be Christian is to be a thankful person. To, to recognize and respond to what God has done in your life. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us you know, how we're to stand, how we're to act. Are we supposed to put our hands up or down or just kind of halfway or out wide or you know, dance around in the eye? It doesn't give us that kind of instruction. But what it does say is that it's to be genuine and, and sincere. It's this kind of with your heart language. And so we have space in our church community for people to kind of express that in ways that's not distracting to others. We're still trying to love others as we do it. Um, but you know, there's lots of different ways to do that. Verse 20, it's giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's, we've touched on it, haven't we? The spirit-filled life is one of deep thankfulness. And verse 21, it's submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. To, to relate rightly to each other as we relate rightly together to God. Uh, to fear him, it's not just this kind of abstract fear. It's this kind of understand his power, his goodness, that he's actually the, the, the creator God and we're just his creatures. 
to submit to him, to listen to him, to, to want to understand his will. See, even from this passage, Paul has a very high view of Jesus, doesn't he? Jesus is God, and so we submit to him because he's our God. See, we're going to spend um, some more time over the next few weeks unpacking what this looks like, to relate rightly to each other, submit to each other, as we submit and, and follow King Jesus, listening to him. We're going to see what it looks like in marriage, in families, in other social relationships over the next two weeks of church. So uh, I'll leave it there. So if, you're, if, you're, if you've heard this tonight, I reckon there are two groups of people in the room right now as we've thought about what it looks to be spirit-filled. I reckon one group of you has heard this and you're feeling downhearted and defeated. You've heard the word tonight and you've seen that maybe areas in your own life don't match up with this. That you're struggling with some of these things that, are in it, that Paul has said here will actually cut you off from an inheritance with God. I'm sure there's some of us in the room that are feeling the weight of that right now. Let me encourage you that Jesus Christ died for you. He has grace upon grace. He loves to forgive. If, if you're feeling trapped in your sin or making foolish choices, real change is possible in Christ Jesus by his spirit at work in you. God's doing a work in you, filling you with his spirit. Keep coming back to him in repentance and he loves to forgive you. If that's you tonight and you're feeling the weight of that, maybe you can have a conversation with someone tonight or this week. Don't leave this feeling if God's doing a work in you right now. But keep coming back to him. Put yourself in a place where you can share with someone, a trusted Christian friend. And they'll help you to keep making choices to live out according to the Lord's will. Jesus rescues you, but he doesn't leave you in your sin and your brokenness. He loves to do a miracle in you through his spirit. But there's another group of us here tonight that are maybe feeling a little bit proud or complacent. You've heard this and you've thought, gee, I'm glad I'm not like those other people struggling in those kind of ways. Can I encourage you not to become complacent in the Christian life, to keep living wise, not as unwise? See what God has done in you. He's done it by his spirit. Anytime you do any good work, it's you doing it, but it's God's spirit in you helping you to do it, causing you to do it, working alongside you. That's what being filled by the Spirit is. Thank God for the work that he's done in you, but don't become complacent. Keep seeking to live out um, a Spirit-filled life, listening to Jesus, following him, encouraging others to do that as well. See, that's truly what it is to be Spirit-filled. It's to, to love in a way that's self-sacrificial, that's other person-centered. It's to walk in the light, no longer in the darkness. It's to live as wise, no longer foolish. And, and it all flows out of this relationship with God where he does a work in us and he changes us by his spirit. That's what true spirituality is. See, worldly spirituality, it won't get you there. It'll only bring you to look inside and, and, and lead you into yourself. Or religious kind of rule-keeping, it won't get you there because it won't do the heart work that's necessary for change. But true Christian spirituality, to be filled by the Spirit, gee, in that space is where God works powerfully. Among us, in our hearts, by His Word, that's the Spirit-filled life.
It's not about this kind of internal finding yourself, but recognizing your need for change and coming to King Jesus. Seeing that he's the only one that can rescue you. Reminding yourself that you are his dearly loved child and walking in love just as Christ has loved us. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your love. We're thankful that as we sit here tonight and and hear some hard truths from your word, that we know that um, change is possible because your spirit has worked in us and, and we can listen to King Jesus now. He's not just a model, he's a savior. He has rescued us. We pray for those among us tonight um, who don't yet know King Jesus and who are feeling the weight of their lives and their lifestyles and maybe feeling fruitless. We pray that you might draw them to yourself tonight. We pray for us as a community that you would help us to be a a community where we can be vulnerable, where we can um, share hard realities and truths about ourselves with others and where we can keep pointing each other back to Jesus, back to his grace and love Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.